This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to episode 31 of the Ned Ryan Podcast. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the bigger themes, obviously, that are at stake on November 3rd. And we've heard a lot of talk about socialism, uh, socialistic, you know, socialist pro- policies versus free market capitalism. And, and that's what I'm going to discuss in more detail, but I also want you to see it through the lens of regime change politics. Others have made this point, but I, I, this is one of the reasons that you see such heated politics these days. We are truly discussing, when you get down to the policies, obviously, socialism versus capitalism, the level above that, more of the 30,000-foot level, is regime change politics, because we really are talking about two very different ways of governing. We're not talking about you know having you know, disagreements over how big a tax cut should be uh, or how much money should be spent on one place or versus another, all these things. We're talking about a completely different governing philosophy. And I, I recently spoke at a fundraiser for President Trump in which I made the point. We really, obviously, I've made a, the point on this uh, podcast as well. We dropped an administrative state inside of a constitutional republic, two very different governing philosophies. And that really is what we're talking about. That you have an administrative state, statism, socialism, governing philosophy that's finally broken out into the open, right? It's been hollowing out a republic for over 100 years. And now we have this open debate, a a far more robust and on-the-surface debate about which way we're going to go as a country. Are we going to have this heavily statist approach, which ultimately leads to socialism. Again, I've described the Green New Deal as coercive socialism, and there's another term for that. It's called communism. The only way that these policies, Green New Deal and others, will be implemented is through massive coercion and by force. That is communism. Versus our constitutional republic. Are we going to go back to truly believing and truly living it out in which all power flows from the people? In a constitutional republic, all power flows from the people to their elected representatives, who they make the stewards of the power and monies given to them to create and enact a government and policies that are meant to advance and protect the interests of we the people, the American people. That's why everything is so heated. Because Donald Trump walked into D.C., the great outsider, and said, this is not how it's supposed to work. You know, I'm the one that decides in a constitutional republic, the duly elected president decides, and what foreign and domestic policy is inside of his administration and the administrative state actors said, we don't think so. We think we're the ones to decide. That's why you see all of the people that believe in a top-down command and control statism approach to governing, whether it's Democrats, the left, those inside the administrative state, many inside the mainstream media, academia, Hollywood, all uniting. They've been united, but even more so and have elevated their resistance to Trump even more so, because they realize he truly is an existential threat to their way of life, their approach to governing, because he doesn't, he doesn't accept the premise. Therefore, he has to be destroyed because of the power that he has. And I, I've also made this argument, too, that for many on the left, first of all, we all have a religious belief system. I made this point in my recent American Greatness article that the dogma lives loudly in the left and the right. You know, they're going to say this. They, they've said it about Amy Coney Barrett. Um, and they refuse to accept it for themselves. But there is a secular faith system in existence that politics for them is a religion, right? That they think they will perfect humanity and society through the force of politics. They are religious zealots, right? And their religion is politics. 
And all of a sudden, big bad orange man walks into their holy of holies, the administrative state, says, "Mm, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think this is what was ever intended. This is not how we are supposed to be as an American people. That, that's why all the vitriol responses and the hatred and the loathing of Trump, because he is a threat to everything that has been building over the last hundred years. And I hope in the second term, he takes a sledgehammer and sticks a dynamite to the administrative state and blows it apart, drains the swamp. But below that, after you look at the higher level stuff, of course, enactment of policies. So socialism, right? It's undeniable that socialist policies and politicians are gaining traction in modern American politics. The politicians, chief among them, Bernie Sanders, think about it. In 2016, some of the ideas that Bernie Sanders were, you know, that he was talking about, even those in the Democratic Party were like, oh, this this is way too far left. And fast forward four years from now, it truly is the dominating force inside the Democratic Party. It has eaten the Democratic Party from within. And Joe Biden, in his semi-senile state, uh, even though I think if left to his own devices, is more moderate, will not be able to resist or hold off the far-left forces inside of his party. In fact, I said it on Tucker the other night, I'm not even sure he serves out his first term, right? I'm not even sure he serves out the first year of his term. And that Kamala Harris, who is as far-left uh, as Bernie Sanders, not kidding, look at the voting records, would then be president of the United States. And Biden truly is a Trojan horse, empty vessel, wherein they hope that they can somehow usher in true socialism into the United States using the guise of someone that's been known as a more moderate figure, although I would quibble with that looking at some of the ways he's, some of the things he's done in the past, but that, that's the premise. So it's undeniable the left has really, truly taken over. And what's amazing is how bold they're being about it. They're asserting their policies. All these socialist policies, they're, they're, they are kind of drawing a little bit of a, well, you know, this is more Scandinavian socialism. It's not really like the socialist dictatorships of Cuba or the Soviet Union. But if you think about it, the Scandinavian countries are not really socialist. They're more capitalist systems with a vast welfare state. Right, the programs come at a high cost to respective populations in the form of substantially higher income tax and sales taxes on the people. But the Scandinavian countries that they're claiming these are the models, they're a lot more market oriented than the United States. Even on in some respects, they have fewer regulations, they have lower corporate taxes. Some cases, there's no minimum wage. Uh, these countries don't have to worry about defense spending, of course, to the same extent that we do. Uh, additionally, median income and the size of the American economy vastly overshadows that of its Scandinavian counterparts. Uh, policies such as universal health care in these nations are not as effective as American socialists proclaim. Uh, you know, you even start to dig down a little bit more on Scandinavian countries. Their abortion laws are surprisingly more conservative than what we currently have in the United States. Uh, a fact that the U.S. socialist politicians completely ignore. I bet you haven't heard, right? Because nobody's talking about it. So the high cost of Scandinavian socialism. Uh, as a lifelong, so- lifelong socialist, Bernie Sanders rebranded himself as a democratic socialist during the 2016 presidential primaries, explaining, when I talk about democratic socialism, I'm not talking 
I'm not looking at Venezuela. I'm not looking at Cuba. I'm looking at countries like Denmark and Sweden. Mm-hmm. Sure, Bernie. These countries are not socialists. They're capitalist countries that have been funding expansive welfare programs, again, through means of high taxation on the entire population, not just the rich, by the way. The welfare programs include, but are not limited to, government-sponsored health care, maternal and paternal leave, subsidized higher education and free colleges for all citizens, and international students, by the way, if it's Norway, uh, and then obviously generous paid sick leave. In 2017, taxes as a percentage of GDP were, by country, 50.7% in Sweden, 53.5% in Denmark, 547 in Norway. In 2016, taxes at all level of government in the United States averaged out to be 26%, so basically half of that. And that was before the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, was passed. So while our overall tax rates are lower by the time you add in the entire population, just so we're clear, the entire population of the U.S. and then average it out, they are far more progressive than Scandinavia, meaning top marginal tax rates are increasing at a faster rate and by a larger amount as income increases. So an American would have to earn $500,000 a year or more to be subject to the highest of the seven tax brackets of 37%. This rate taxes every dollar made past 500000 at 37%. Such an income level is eight times the average national income. The highest tax rates go into effect at one and a half times the average income in Sweden, 1.6 times the average income in Norway, and about 1.3 times uh, when you look at Denmark. So if the U.S. had a tax code as flat as Denmark's, then someone earning about 70000 a year would actually be subject to a top marginal tax rate of 46.3%. That's just the income tax, though. Scandinavian countries have a 25% VAT tax, a value-added tax on all consumer purchases, which amounts to a heavy sales tax. So even when dollar value of payments from government-sponsored benefits are subtracted from the tax burden, a single-income couple with two children earning the average wage will pay an average personal income tax rate of 22% in the Scandinavian countries, while the same rate is only about 14% here in the United States. Across all family types, average American family earning the median wage would pay between two to 5,000 in taxes every year under the Nordic model. This is a net increase, which subtracts, of course, the value of government benefits, and it refers to economic policies in Scandinavia, Finland, and Iceland. So despite these lavish welfare states, household incomes in these three Scandinavian countries are in fact significantly lower than in the United States when adjusted for purchasing power. Norway, again, with these adjustments, 51,489. Sweden's just over 50,000. Denmark, just over 44,000. So lower household income among Scandinavians likely caused by the stringent taxation and other economic policies, but it's not ethnicity. Evidence for this claim is found in substantially higher incomes among Scandinavians who have moved to the United States in comparison to the native Scandinavians. So, if you think about it, higher incomes are not higher incomes not adjusted for lower tax rates in the United States, which allows them to keep a larger portion of their money, which was already higher for their Scandinavian counterparts. So, if you look at Norwegian Americans, they're making 62,000 
and change, which is 21% higher than their native Norwegian counterparts. Swedish Americans are making 62,295, which is 23% higher. And Danish Americans are making 63,630, which is 43% higher. Uh, in 2012, the median household income for the United States was just over 51,000, but among Scandinavian Americans, it was over 67,000. Some more recent recent statistics uh, in 2019 show that by the time you add all of these different dynamics and look at the Scandinavian countries, the effective top marginal tax rates when you include income, payroll, consumption, employee social contributions, listen to this. In Sweden, it's over 75%. In Finland, 70%. In Denmark, 66%. Norway, 62%. And then you compare it to the United States, we're at 47%. Again, this doesn't include some of the... Um, it, it doesn't include all the last little dynamics, but it includes most of it, obviously, because it includes consumption, sales tax. Uh, household debt to GDP per country as of December of 2019. Denmark, 112. Norway, 105. Sweden, 88, United States, 75%, Finland, 66%. On the corporate tax front, prior to the adoption of the 2017 uh, tax cut, United States had the fourth highest corporate tax rate in the world, which obviously put it in a non-competitive position to attract business, business from around the world. Now, it's at an average global rate. But the disparity between the United States corporate tax rate and those of the Scandinavian countries was even greater back then which led to a favorable business climate in the Scandinavian countries. In turn, these countries were then in position of being able to fund their vast social welfare programs, although only to a certain extent. I think the other thing that's disingenuous about Sanders and the rest saying, well, we're just doing this uh, Scandinavian socialism, not Venezuelan or Cuban. There are certain things that are being missed, just slightly um, big dynamics, including population and ethnic demographics. General rule of thumb, countries with smaller populations that are pretty much ethnically homogenous are better able to manage large social programs such as universal health care than a larger, more ethnically diverse nation like, say, us, the United States. So each one of the four major Scandinavian countries, I mean, literally have a fraction of the United States population are much more ethnically homogenous than America. For example, Norway, 5.368 million people. So about just under 5.4 million people, entire population of Norway as of 2020. When it comes to the ethnic makeup of Norway, 83% are Norwegian, 8.3% other European, and about 8.5% are other. Look at Sweden. There's about 10.2 million people for the entire population of Sweden as of 2019. Ethnically, it's about 81% Swedish, 1.8% Syrian, 1.4% Finnish, 1.4% Iraqi, and 14.5% other as of 2017. Look at Denmark. 5.8 million people as of 2019. 86% Danish. Includes those in Greenland, 1.1% uh, Turkish, and 12.6% other, typically Polish, Syrian, German, Iraqi, and Romanian. In Finland, 5.5 million people as of 2019. 93% are Finnish, 
5.6% are Swede, half a percent are Russian, 0.1% are Romanian, and 0.1% are Sami. Uh, that was of 2006. That all to say, the overwhelming majority of those that live in Finland, uh, 98, 99%, are literally either Finnish or Swedish and a population of 5.5 million. So look at the United States. We're at about 330 million people right now, give or take, right? 60.4% are non-Hispanic white, 183 are Hispanic and Latino, 13.4% are black, 59 are Asian, 1.3% are Native American or Alaskan Natives, 0.2% are Native Hawaiian or other uh, Pacific Islanders, and another roughly 3% are two or more races. That all to say, 330 million versus typically, for all these Scandinavian countries, anywhere between 5 and 10 million people per country. Another reason that I've discussed in the past but needs to be highlighted in this situation is the fact that these Scandinavian countries, again, fraction of the size of the United States, ethnically homogenous, also have the ability to do all these social welfare programs and have high taxation rates because they're spending a fraction on national defense that we do. So as a percentage of GDP, the NATO country, NATO spending per country as a percentage of GDP as of 2020 this year, the United States is just under 3.5% of GDP on national defense. Norway's 1.7, Denmark is 1.3. So compared to these Scandinavian countries, we are spending a disproportionate amount of money on national defense compared to them especially, of course, the Scandinavian countries. So what you're supposed to do is part of NATO spend 2%, right? 2% of GDP is supposed to be spent on defense. Scandinavian countries are not doing that since we're essentially covering the gap, the difference, which Donald Trump has made a point of. So therefore they get to, because we're making up the gap in the funding so they can then spend that money on their robust social welfare programs. So take the United States out of the equation. Right? What if we left NATO? Then all of a sudden, these European countries and Scandinavian countries, they're either going to have to raise taxes, incredibly already, you know, incredibly high rates already, they'd have to raise them, or they'd have to cut their social welfare services, or in fact, they might actually have to do both. So I would remind people, Sweden and Finland are not part of NATO, uh, but they do not spend anywhere as much uh, as the United States does on, on national defense. So, although Scandinavian countries have universal health care, the quality and expedience of this care are not as positive, of course, not as positive as depicted by Bernie Sanders and others on the left here in this country. A key metric that proves this is the waiting time for key health care services, which are incredibly long in several Scandinavian countries. So, let's start with some of those. Hip replacement and wait times, from specialist assessment to treatment, 110 days in Norway, 90 days in Finland, 75 days in Sweden, 37 days, actually relatively short in Denmark. Knee replacement times, uh, wait times, Norway, 139 days, Finland, 106, Sweden, 90, Denmark, 40. Cataract surgery, Norway, it's 97 days, Finland, 85, Sweden, 48, Denmark, 41. So how long do patients have to get how long did patients have 
to get an appointment after receiving advice to seek a doctor in specialist healthcare. These are from a few years ago. United States, less than four weeks. About 70% were at least four weeks. In Sweden, less than four weeks, only 48%. uh, At least four weeks, 44%. In Norway, less than four weeks to get an appointment, obviously 37%. How long did it take patients to wait for an elective surgery? In the United States, the wait time is less than a month for 61% of people. One to four months is 31%, four more months, 3%. In Sweden, less than a month is only 37%. One to four months is about 47%, four more months, 12%. Again, these are small countries. Remember, these are fraction of the size of the United States. Basically, for I mean, one thirtieth to one sixtieth the size of the United States, and they still have much longer wait times. So, how long did patients have to wait in the waiting room? The last time they went to the emergency room, and the United States never treated is only half a point. Less than an hour is fifty-five percent of those that visit an emergency room. One to four hours is thirty-two percent, and the rest uh, four more hours. Sweden never treated about 2%, less than an hour is 46%, one to four hours is about 30%. Norway never treated 0.6%, less than an hour, 49% roughly, one to four hours, 34%. This is again showing for medical treatment in a heavily socialized universal healthcare system, the wait times in countries that again are infinitesimal fraction in population of the United States, longer waits, uh, not better care and longer waits. So single healthcare healthcare is is one of the central planks of the democratic socialist platform. I would argue just democrat platform because socialists have taken over. And it's not strictly based on the Scandinavian healthcare model. Uh, the the main difference between the two is that single payer healthcare would make all private health insurance plans illegal, which Kamala Harris so proudly proclaimed, and then a couple days later stumbled all over herself saying, no, I'm not going to make private healthcare plans illegal. Uh-huh. Well, in Scandinavia, just so we're clear, even with their universal healthcare, Scandinavian countries allow such plans to coexist alongside the government-sponsored plans. Uh, the plans also differ because they utilize cost-sharing schemes for certain services, and they are less comprehensive in their coverage than a single-payer system would be. So, so we're clear, if a Medicare for All would, was implemented, it's, of course, going to be a highly bureaucratic system, devoid of all cost-sharing schemes, mandatory comprehensive coverage, ranging from prescription drugs, dental vision, and other services deemed necessary, in quotes, by the HHS secretary. And then on the other hand, the prevalence of private insurance has increased, by the way, as they so loudly proclaim, the left so loudly proclaims, we want to have the Scandinavian healthcare approach. Oh, by the way, private plans in Scandinavian countries have actually increased in recent years. Private plans offer wider coverage, have shorter wait times, allow for access to private facilities, and give the patient more flexibility and a greater amount of choices. So as the left is proclaiming they want universal single payer. We want to be just like the Scandinavian countries. The Scandinavian countries are in fact moving away from that. So one of the other arguments is again that somehow universal health care will make everybody healthier. It's not true at all. 
According to analysis from January of 2018, which measured overall survival rates among the 18 most common cancers in various countries, the United States still had the highest five-year survival rate for cancer in general out of any other nation in the entire world. This all to say, some of the arguments that Bernie Sanders and the other true socialists are making about Scandinavia are not even true. They're not valid at all. So PragerU uh, recently uh, did a piece not too long ago, Democratic Socialism is still socialism. Amen to that. Just because you put a little you know, qualifier at the front, it's still socialism. Just because a regime is democratically elected does not mean that it's morally good. And so PragerU goes through this whole list. Hamas was democratically elected in Gaza. Robert Mugabe was democratically elected in Zimbabwe. Hugo Chavez was democratically elected in Venezuela. I can assure you in all of those cases, the democratically elected leadership was not good for the country. And it is pretty funny when you look at some of these people from Denmark or Sweden, they resent being called socialists. Lars Loki Rasmussen, I would like to make one thing clear. Denmark is far from a socialist planned economy. Denmark is a market economy. Not quite true, but again, they don't, they don't consider themselves socialists. Uh, Sweden, founder of IKEA, uh, left Sweden because of the higher tax rates. So there's always this conflict between the makers and the takers. Again, it inevitably leads to the collapse of socialism. So John Stossel did a piece uh, at Reason TV on Sweden is not a socialist success. Again, many left-wing politicians are identifying as democratic socialists and claim they want to make the United States more like Sweden. However, Sweden is not socialist and has adopted many policies that are actually in opposition to socialist ideology. Sweden is not socialist. Government doesn't own the means of production. Examples, True examples of socialist countries, again, are Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea. In the 1970s and 80s, uh, Sweden had a system that did resemble socialism, of course, by means of incredibly high tax rates. Same period of time when the economy, by the way, in Sweden was going south. So Astrid Lindgren, who's the author of Pippi Longstocking, was a social democrat who made a lot of money from her books series. During this period of time, guess what she discovered? She paid 102% in taxes. So after experiencing burdensome regulations, realizing that the high taxes still could not fund their expensive welfare states, the Swedes cut spending, privatized the national rail network, abolished inheritance taxes, eliminated some government monopolies, and sold state-owned businesses like the maker of Absolute Vodka. On issues such as free trade and regulations, Sweden is actually more market-oriented than the United States. These market interactions help fund 18-month paid paternal leave, government-paid childcare, etc. Sweden actually switched to a school voucher system, amazing, that allows parents to choose where to send their children to school and encourages school competition. Sweden has also privatized their pension system in the face of financial collapse. Sweden does not have a minimum wage. Sweden taxes all people, especially lower income citizens, at a higher rate than the United States in order to fund their welfare system. Remember, about 47% of uh, United States citizens do not pay federal income tax, right? Well, not, not true in Sweden. Everybody gets taxed. So while taxes are higher in Sweden, they are more progressive uh, than the United States. 
So PragerU all took a harder look at Denmark. Is it socialist? Of course, it has high taxes, high levels of spending, yet it has some of the highest, uh, strongest protections of individual property rights in the world, and it is a very easy place to open business. The World Bank claims there is a smaller amount of bureaucratic red tape in Denmark than any other country in the world, except for New England and Singapore, who are considered two of the most market-oriented economies in the world. Denmark also does not have a minimum wage. Denmark is typically ranked as one of the most market-oriented economies in the world by both the Fraser Institute and the Heritage Foundation. Reminder, Denmark is about the size and population of Maryland. A strong market economy allowed Denmark to fund its vast welfare state. In other words, Denmark became wealthy before it created its welfare state. Relative to Europe, Denmark's economic peak was in the 1950s in comparison to the United States, whose peak was in the early 70s. Uh, subsequently, they established high rates of taxation and spending, which caused extreme economic crisis. Their fiscal irresponsibility in Denmark spawned the Tax Protesters Party. Uh, and while the party has since dissolved, the cause it symbolized, of course, remains strong. While pensions in Denmark started as exclusive payments to the elderly, again, some resemblance to our social security system, they're gradually being overtaken by private pension savings plans. As for education, nearly one in five Danish parents send their children to private schools. So, but so you know, I mean, the average Dane is paying 50% of his income in consumption and income taxes while they earn about 15% less than their average American. After taxes, an average American has 27% higher disposable income than a Dane. So who's more pro-choice, Europe or America? Again, thanks to PragerU for these statistics. While American progressives often look to Scandinavian countries as guides for various social welfare programs, they outright ignore the same country's laws concerning abortion. Uh, Emily Matcher, who wrote in The Atlantic back in 2013, said, I assumed the Western Europe would be the land of abortion on demand. But as it turns out, abortion laws in Europe are both more restrictive and more complicated than that. Waiting periods, decried by American pro-choicers as unreasonably bur burdensome, are actually common. Abortions are legal in the United States in every state before the 20th week of a woman's pregnancy. Not so in the Scandinavian countries. In Denmark, after 12 weeks, many restrictions apply. In Finland, abortion is widely available during the first 12 weeks. However, a woman must provide compelling reason for an abortion even during that time period. In Sweden, uh, abortions are allowed up to the 18th week, but bans most after the 22nd week. Uh, during this four-week period, a woman can only get an abortion if it's approved by the National Board of Health and Welfare. In Norway, major controversy was sparked when in 2014 it was revealed that since 2001, 17 babies had been aborted after 22 weeks, which is the legal cutoff in the country. Of course, such a phenomenon would not even be deemed newsworthy in the United States. You actually have people advocating for abortion up to the moment of birth. This all to say, my whole point in this podcast, the siren song of socialism and the policies that are being promoted by Bernie Sanders, we just want to be Scandinavia. It's not even true. It's a false premise. These Scandinavian countries reject the premise. They're more market-oriented than we are. They're more restrictive on abortion. 
a lot of the things that they are claiming are true that they want to implement in the United States are simply untrue. And then on top of that, you're dealing with countries that are a 30th to a 60th the size of the United States and far more overwhelmingly ethnically homogenous. That all to say, the stupidity being promoted by the left, which is Democrats, would never work in this country. There's no way. And the only way that you would be able to do it would be to crush every last vestige of freedom. It would truly be coercive socialism that they would use the power of the state to coerce people into a one-size-fits-all, whether it's on energy, whether it's on health care, you name it. That's why we are looking at regime politics and they understand they will never be able to achieve this as long as Donald Trump is in the White House. That's why he has to win on November 3rd.